Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on. Pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra and elsewhere, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to Yarra Libraries podcast. In early 2020, when Jason Chong came to speak with us about the basics of gardening and bringing plants into urban spaces, we were living in a pretty different world. Today, back under tighter restrictions in Melbourne, you're probably spending a bit more time at home than you usually would be. Given that, we're particularly glad to be able to bring you this recording of Jason's talk. We hope it inspires you to bring a bit more of the outside world inside. Jason is the author of Plant Society, and most recently, Green, essential guides to indoor gardening, small spaces, and dropping the guilt if your plants drop their mortal coil or their leaves a little sooner than you expected. He also runs the Plant Society, his Collingwood-based plant store and consultancy. So listen up to hear about all things plants, as well as the wonderful things that can happen when you follow what you love. Here just for the plant version of Dear Abby, Skip to about 30 minutes in for audience plant questions and Jason's expert answers. Big thanks for coming out today. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar of the Plant Society. So we're based in Collingwood, actually. So we, Nathan out the back, and I have been running the Plant Society for three years now. We now have a team of 26 employees working predominantly on indoor plants. We do small courtyards, balconies, but we focus on the city. As Nell mentioned, I am an architect and I was an architect for seven years before doing this. But what I used to do was use a lot of plants in my projects, whether it was residential projects or commercial projects. Integrating plants into the projects I did was really important to me. And the reason for that is I come from a gardening family. I grew up gardening from the age of 10 and I still garden obviously constantly, but I still actually do therapeutic gardening of my own as well as work as well. So it's not unusual for me to get home now and garden for another two hours. So that's how I live my life. The reason why I kind of introduced my background is because I was not trained in horticulture. I relate to being a gardener, which I think anyone can be a gardener. And even as an architect, you don't really learn until you're in the field. And I feel the same for gardeners as well and horticulturalists. So some things will work, but as our city evolves, especially, we're changing the environment as we can now see from the fires. Everything we do relates to our natural environment. So as an architect, I really believe that development is fine as long as we integrate nature into everything we do. Today we'll run through some moments in my new book, which is focused on urban spaces whereas the first book was just indoor, but looking at how we can integrate more greenery into our urban spaces. So this rooftop is a great example, but it doesn't always have to be A, expensive, and A, a rooftop garden or a green wall. I actually kind of hate green walls. So, But because we live in Australia, we have to acknowledge our climate's not going to get cooler. And so a green wall is kind of against our environment. So this is my house. On the left there is probably a year ago, so it's a lot lusher now. My neighbours always laugh because I have to carry the bins out of there rather than roll them out. (laughs) But that actually faces west as well. So west facing, as you know, is the harshest condition. And I actually think that west facing is pretty much all of Australia in terms of the intensity in summer. So just being sensitive to the environment we live in and also acknowledging that that's going to be the case and it's going to get more extreme. In the middle is actually our back room. It used to be a spare bedroom, but it's now a plant room. And that resulted because initially I lived in an apartment that had no outdoor space and I really wanted to garden more. And so indoor plants was the way to go. It's quite tropical because the lighting conditions are quite dark. It's low light to bright light and there's subtleties in that. But there was no point of me trying to grow a succulent, which I know you all get told you can't kill, but you can kill a succulent. And that's when you start thinking about the natural environment and how they grow naturally. On the right there is actually probably six months after we bought the house. And I bought the house off an old Greek lady. And what did they do? They concrete the whole house. And so it's still all concrete. And so a lot of these plants were from my parents' house when I was gardening there. And I brought them over. And you can see that it's slightly changing because I never wanted a arid succulent garden but it was what was going to work at the time 
But once the shelter started growing was when I can start introducing other plants that need the shelter. So we actually have over 400 plants inside the house now. As you can see, a lot of them are small, but the passion was to find rare and unusual plants, tropical plants, begonias, plants that also challenge my skill set. So I still do kill plants because I am experimenting with tropical edibles in the house, for instance. At the moment, I'm trying to grow a cinnamon tree because if you think about the microclimate, indoor environment is very similar to a tropical environment, especially with our humidity recently. I think as gardeners, you start evolving to the changes in the conditions. These are all shots of our house. So you can see how many plants are in there and how we use plants differently. So there's no point having a big tree on the dining table, but there's moments where you can still live within your house, but have the plants harmoniously in there as well. I find bedrooms a great space for plants because they can be tucked away, but they also purify the air as well. So that's quite important. It's important in offices, especially because sadly they're almost the worst places to actually spend your time, not because you're at work, but because they're naturally low in light. Airflow is quite poor. A lot of the air is recycled, so it's going between all the floors and aircon and heating is taking out the moisture out of the air as well. So that was one thing about working full-time in an office that I hated. I mean, it just wasn't natural to me. We actually work on a lot of offices where greenery is really important. And we've actually seen the benefits of it from a really big commercial office. When we first went in there, I actually got yelled at for putting a plant on someone's desk. And then a few weeks later, she asked if I could put a plant on her desk because she could see how it was changing the work dynamic and it was a more pleasant place to work. So that was my collection before we actually decided to start. We didn't actually want to start a business out of it. I know Nathan and I never wanted to open a retail shop. And the reason for us progressing to that point was actually the community wanting us to do that. Prior to opening our first shop, some of you may have made it to there, we used to do plant socials. So we used to find the back of a cafe where we could collaborate with that cafe owner and host a plant social. And that was to bring people together to pass on knowledge. I tried to join gardening clubs and found it really hard to do that because they were at 11am on a Tuesday and they wouldn't move. And I think you're all naughty. I finally found a job and I went through a whole series of architectural jobs where I burnt out. I was working 60 or 70 hours. The last firm I was at, they let me take 11 o'clock off on a Wednesday to go to the Botanic Gardens as their friends group. But when I actually got there and asked to volunteer more, they said I had to wait 10 years. And then they asked me why I didn't have a job. And I found that really problematic. And it's that idea of our society changing so fast that we're forgetting that we have to pass the knowledge on. But as I started investigating, I travelled up to Cairns to meet a grower who brought in a lot of tropicals for the hot houses in Australia. And sadly, they were disappearing. So all her work had slowly disappeared. And it's just we didn't value it anymore. And so we kept on doing these plant socials because we figured if I couldn't join a club, I would create my own club. I didn't think anyone would come, but they did. And they slowly grew. So we did once a month. We moved around Victoria. We went to Jindavik even in the country. And it was all about people coming together and asking basic questions. When I got asked to write the book, they wanted to know what I wanted to write about. And they wanted me to do a coffee table book, which I said no to and I laughed. But I really wanted to do the basics. And I called it a cookbook for gardeners. Because if you can cook, then you should be able to garden. We're still doing the same workshop that I've been doing for three years. And that's water, light and nutrition. And it still books out. And it's why you guys are here too, because you find those three challenging. We were moving around every three weeks, um, or every month, and then every two weeks, and then every week. And what we were doing with these plants was storing it in our house on top of our 400 plants. So then we decided that we would open a shop because people were wanting us to open every week and we couldn't physically drive it around in two hatchbacks every weekend and drag it all back in the house. And so we approached Minanoi, who are a cafe in Collingwood, because we decided if we were going to do retail, we had to be amongst the community and not open a retail shop that was manned by one person in the typical environment. And we thought in Melbourne, we love our coffee and we love our food. So why not pair it together with that scenario? We sadly got forced out of that space because it got developed, but it was a blessing in disguise because we didn't realise it would grow so fast. Um, we moved down the road um, to Kill Street so we moved from Peel Street to Kill Street. Same number, 33. So that's why I always say it's meant to be. But um, we got to grow six times the size and we got to bring in 
different pots, different plants, host workshops and do a range of things. So the space is quite dynamic now. And we got to actually create a conservatory in the space too. It's an old bootmaker's factory. The addition was a bit ad hoc back when they used to do extensions. Council would not let you do that now. And we wanted to start celebrating handmade ceramics, which is really important to our industry as well, and also supporting the craft in Australia. It's good to be able to keep a lot of the craft alive as an architect too. A lot of the tradies are disappearing. A lot of the old timber joints aren't the same anymore. But there are social reasons for that because labour is expensive, so you have to kind of balance that. But it's nice that we've got a following that appreciate handmade ceramics and support it as well. So that was Melbourne. And then we actually got asked to go to Sydney two years ago. And the Sydney market is slightly different. I was saying before as well that they're, I feel they're just catching on to greenery. And the city of Sydney actually has announced that I think 40% coverage of greenery in cities. And it doesn't just involve canopies. It involves shrubs and a whole range of underplanting, which is really important. And because everyone wanted, we don't like doing just one thing. Upstairs we have a B&B because we wanted to celebrate the old shop house that we rented. And it was a response to people wanting to come to our house and stay in our house. I would actually go to the supermarket and people would pester me to come and visit the house. And when I said no, they were baffled why. I understood why they wanted to come. They wanted to come and see if there were that many plants, what it was like to live in the space and also how the lighting conditions could be similar to their house. So the B&B has been really successful, people commenting about the greenery and actually being able to walk through a shop and have a shop attendant give them guidance about the community. So in order to get 400 plants, we'll run through the fundamentals. Who gets really confused when they read a label, a plant label? So I, we choose not to have them from a sustainability point of view as well in our shop. So we've spoken to our growers about limiting, I call marketing, because no one really understands those labels anyway. But what we get our team to do is to really start explaining the differences in natural lighting. So when we say harsh light, bright light, filtered light and low light, you know exactly what that is because right now you probably don't know. That's one thing we wanted to capture in the book. So on the left is harsh light. So the best way to explain that is four o'clock in the afternoon when the sun's really hot, most likely in summer. It's sunlight your ferns don't want to sit in. And it's sunlight that you don't want to go in and sit there for four hours without sunscreen. The second picture is a well-lit space. So that's northern light. So if you have a house, you know that northern light's the best light you want to live in. Sadly, it's not going to happen everywhere in Melbourne. And when I've travelled to New York, it definitely doesn't happen there because as they develop, the lighting changes. But that's a well-lit space. So north-facing, the sun's rising in the east, travelling via the north and setting in the west. The second last scenario is actually filtered light, and that's predominantly the light in my house. So it's traditionally lighting that streams through a tree, and there's pockets of bright light and actually shade as well. I actually personally find it the best lighting to grow in from a lifestyle point of view. So if you do have a western garden, for instance my front garden, I'm probably watering it once every two days or once a day to keep it alive in summer to allow it to look as lush as it does in the front first photo. And that's even using Mediterranean plants and arid plants as well. So the tropical garden inside my house, I'm watering once a week in summer and once every two weeks in winter. So it's more manageable. The fourth scenario is low light and that's the Victorian corridor, apartment bathroom and a lot of offices and retail. So spaces we generally work in tend to be low light. The last scenario is no light, which we don't photograph. Um, <laughs> we do in the next one. No light, offices again, sadly, retail. If you look at Melbourne Central, for instance, if you switched off all the lights, and I'll break the myth that light bulbs grow your plants, because a lot of people think that. They don't grow your plants. So if you switched off all the lights in Melbourne Central, that space would be actually pitch black pretty much all year round, especially in the back of the shops. We are really against using plastic plants. We actually don't work with some clients who even have plastic plants in their spaces. We've been working with Westfield to write contracts to cancel out plastic plants. We work with a whole lot of developers to actually motivate them to get retailers to stop using them. The reason for that is you can rotate plants in the space. So I would choose low light plants and actually rotate them into a space that's a bit brighter in your house or your office, for instance. It sounds like a lot of work, but it's not. Um, you're probably rotating once a week or once every two weeks, on and off. So when you rotate this array of photos, it replicates the tropical rainforest. So at the very top, you've got your trees, 
And as you go further down, you've got plants that are growing at the ground level under a thick canopy. So that's how I like to look at indoor spaces. So who goes shopping and chooses a plant purely by aesthetic as your first indicator? So you need to actually change that thinking and it's just the way we've been trained in society and the way we shop. We will put aesthetics over quality and we'll put aesthetics over the health of a plant. And that's why a lot of people wonder why they're killing plants. Always shortlist the natural lighting conditions first and observe it and then go and choose the plants that you're trying to grow. Each room as well will have a few scenarios. So as you're closer to the front of the window, it can be harsh light. But down here, for instance, you can see it's darker and there's moments of lower light. So I get a lot of gardeners comment that they've tried to grow a plant, it's died and they've sent me a photo and it's tucked in the corner in the hallway and there's no natural light there and they wonder why. But they've categorised that whole room because one corner in the room is bright, that the rest of the room is bright. So it's important to assess your conditions. I always say assess your man-made conditions and then refer it to somewhere in the natural environment. Harsh light isn't a negative thing. It means you're growing arid plants, Mediterranean plants. Just think about a desert. Think about the Australian outback. There will be some plants you can never grow inside and then a lot of natives, Australian natives, but you can grow them on your balcony and in your courtyards. Has everyone repotted? No. Is everyone scared of repotting? Yeah. With gardening, always give it a go. If you kill a plant, you'll know why you've killed it. It will tell you. But as long as you learn why you've killed it. So if you bought a plant, put it in the wrong light. Don't try to put it in the same light again if it's exactly the same plant. Try it somewhere else. Or within the first two weeks, if a plant isn't coping, assess the fundamentals again. And once we run through them, you'll know them all. And then question why it's not working. So when it comes to repotting, it is quite simple. I'll run through the steps now. The first thing to do is to see if it's ready to repot. You can check at the bottom of the pot, so underneath, to see if there's a root system. But you can also um, press the sides, and if it's firm, you know it's ready to repot. But if it's quite loose and the soil comes up, it can probably last in that pot for a while. So you're squishing the sides to get it out, and then the second photo, tipping it upside down. I see a lot of people tear the plant out by pulling the foliage. Always be gentle. So just remember that they're alive. And I know that seems really obvious to most of you, but I do get the odd person think that plants come off a conveyor belt and they want the foliage to always be green and never die. And it's because we de we're dealing with a generation who have never gardened in the ground before. So we've got families growing up in apartments now. You start analysing the city as it's evolving and there's a big generation who have never grown up gardening in the garden. Second from the right, we're teasing out the roots just to break that root ball a little bit and then trimming off some roots if you want to promote some finer root growth. On the left there, I'm adding some slow-release fertiliser that adds in nutrients. You can actually use organic products as well. I use rock dust quite a bit, which is basalt and granite. Compost is also handy if you ration it out. You're placing the plant back in and then we're backfilling. And as you're backfilling, you're pressing the soil down gently as well. The next fundamental is nutrition. So nutrition covers a few things. It covers tonic, fertilizers, nutrients, and soil. So it's the most complex part, the part that a lot of people miss. So a lot of people buy a cheap potting mix and wonder why their plants aren't thriving. Don't skimp on nutrition like you wouldn't skimp on nutrition on yourself. In my hand, there is slow-release fertilizer. That essentially I refer to as... The fertilizer group I refer to as steroids because they're artificial. They're designed to make your plants flourish artificially. My preference is to use slow release or rock dust, which is an organic product. If you look at rock dust, it's more a nutrient. It is natural and it will give your plants the vitamins. So rather than steroids, it's giving the vitamins to your plants. So always buy a premium potting mix. And if you're unsure, it should have the ticks on the side. If you are wanting organic, be careful it's not a veggie mix because it's quite coarse. Your indoor mix should be free draining and rich in nutrients. So don't dig soil out of your garden if you have a garden because that happens quite a bit as well. But always use a free draining potting mix. The other steroids in my category, liquid fertilizer, products like miracle Grow, Aquasoil, they will give your plants a big kick but also make you get a bigger harvest of fruit and veg, for instance, and also a bigger crop of flowers. So it's not something we all want. I don't do liquid fertilizer because gardening for me isn't a rush. I don't want 
a big crop every season, especially outside, and I don't want a huge amount of flowers. I'd rather it naturally happen. You don't need liquid fertilizer unless you really want that. And so once you've got the hang of the fundamentals, and so the fundamentals are water-like nutrition, watering is one that is a next challenge for a lot of people. So a bad gardener generally waters once a week, and then they might do every three weeks, and they might forget and do once every six months. These are always the emails we get. And then they might freak out and go, I'll water once a day or even twice a day. Watering doesn't have to be difficult. I had a phone call recently last week saying she was watering with bottled water. You do not have to water with bottled water. <laughs> Just be careful where you're reading information because if you're reading it online, it might be overseas where we can't even drink the water. That makes sense. And I was trying to explain we probably have the best water in Melbourne, in Victoria. So you don't have to filter out your water to water your plants as well. When you're watering, think about simulating the rain. So don't just water in one spot in the pot. Try to evenly distribute it on the top of the soil. Think about how the rain does that outside. And we can see from our gardens now with the downpour how the garden's reacting to that. So you want to mimic that when you're watering your plants. Always water all the way through, not just... I've had people water a teaspoon and measure it out. You should water all the way through so your plants get a good drink, but then let them drain out. So don't ever let them sit in water. Misting is not a substitute for watering. It's a substitute for humidity. So if you've got tropical plants that like humidity, you want to mist, especially with aircon and heating, to put the moisture back in the air. You will not have to do it this time of year now because it's so humid. But when we do have the dry summers, that's when you want to think about introducing humidity for your tropical plants. So you don't have to do it with your arid plants. It would probably do nothing for them apart from rot them. But your tropical plants would prefer a mist if it's really dry. No, so I, the question was, um, do I ever put plants in water? The only time I do that is if I've been bad and I've forgotten to water one of them and it's drooping to the ground, that's when I'll soak them. But I never water from the bottom. The only exception is a self-watering pot, which is designed to cope with that. But I still water from the top in that scenario. Because if you think about the natural environment, there's not a lot of scenarios where the water is coming from the bottom. It's always rain. Once you've got the handle of looking after your plants is when we start looking at styling. I'm in a really fortunate position. I never knew I would be a plant stylist. We do two to three projects a week from the scale of a house to tomorrow we're doing eight floors of an apartment. So it's quite grueling. If it, has anyone, anyone been to Melbourne Central recently and seen the bridges? So we've been working on that with Melbourne Central to turn it into a conservatory. So there's two floors of the bridge which have been really successful in allowing people to plug their iPhones in or use Wi-Fi and work from these communal spaces in the bridges. It used to be quite a transient space, as you can probably all remember. It's really slowed people down to reinterpret what a public space is because technically it's a private space, but we really wanted it to become a public space through the greenery as well. This week, actually, we got sign-off for a Sky Lounge in Melbourne Central, and that's something I've been working on for two years with Melbourne Central to convince them to do a hanging garden on the top floor. It's exciting to see developers actually support that as well. I spend a lot of my time styling, choosing the right pots, the right plants. This is a corner in our house. You can see how rather than choosing a range of plants that don't probably match each other, I'm starting to think about tone and texture. The blue pot kind of capturing some of the stone color rather than introducing a bright pink pot that's on trend. I actually hate the word on trend because I think we're all smart enough to know our own style. When I'm choosing products though, it's all about finding the owner's personality or the resident's personality and actually harnessing that and also looking at products that become heirloom items. Products in our shop I choose because I'm happy to gift it in 50 years and that's how I look at buying products as well. Retail is a very tricky industry because we're trying to support sustainability, but actually we're creating more stuff. I always say as long as you're buying things, you'll keep for years, and that's the best way to be sustainable, and actually supporting local makers where it's not travelling as far as well. Here are an array of planters. Um, you can see how I do keep it quite neutral, and even the colours are relative to the environment rather than having a hot pink colour. On the left there is a Mr Kitley pot, which is really handy as it's got a self-watering mechanism in it. Terracottas are really great as they age as well. And then in the middle there, you've got a local maker, Anchor Ceramics, who throw, and his glazes are all neutral as well. It kind of takes me back to 50s architecture. 
which all that stuff is coming back as well. All those tiles, the neutral tiles, handmade tiles are all coming back in the interiors we're seeing now. And then we've got some more local makers who do a range of hand building and then also wheel throwing as well. But it doesn't always have to be stuff you've actually bought. In the glass jar there is actually an old candle jar I've just planted something in. I think everyone's a bit scared of being shabby chic nowadays because we're past that. If you repurpose things in a considered way, it doesn't have to look shabby chic. I got yelled at the other day because I joked about someone's house being shabby chic. You can see how you can use plants to create different forms of atmosphere. When I first started, my parents didn't believe that we could do that too because a plant was a plant. But it's looking at foliage texture, colour, scale. So the same principles as you would use in design and having more restraint. So one thing I got taught in architecture was to have more restraint. Some firms, they would force me to use three materials and that was it. You couldn't veer off that. So we have the same language now as well. We would tend to use, if we're going to be crazy with texture, we will use the same pot colour, the same size, rather than having 50 types of foliage, 50 types of planters. So in the left house is an extension in Abbotsford around the corner from us. The architecture was quite minimal and so we wanted to keep the textures in the field of dark greens, no patterns, nothing too finicky. It was quite strong forms, but really wanting to connect the outdoor garden, which was really important in this house because you just look out, similar to this scenario, to this outdoor space and that made the space. So we don't want to overcrowd it, but have moments where it would feather into the backyard. The next picture is an artist, um, Bobby Clark, who a lot of her items are found items, stuff she's found on the street, vintage stores. She's loving a lot of rattan. And so the plants actually mimic that too. So the dracaena on the side is not perfectly lush. It's a bit haggard, but it's okay because that's a look. There's a hoya in a satchel and then found bits of foliage as well. On the right is a stylist house in Armadale. The palette initially, so what we do is we take the interior palette and the architect's palette and the landscape designer's palette and we join the dots with that. So rather than me coming in and saying I want to do a tropical oasis in this last house and I want to do Palm Springs style in the first house, it's about really bringing the interiors and architecture together with the things we're adding. And so here was playing on the pink tones, like in the Ripsalis as the painting but then using plants that had maroon tones but purple tones on the underneath, textures, heavily patterned plants. And you can see through using different plants, we've created these different styles. Sometimes we go to houses and actually retail projects where we tell them, no, you're not having a jungle, although they are willing to pay for it. Because in those spaces, it's not about the plants. It's not about me. It's we're almost creating the backdrop for the products. So in a retail store, there's no point in us dedicating half their floor area to a jungle because their main aim is to sell products and we are there to support them. So this is a furniture showroom where, yes, they're plant stands, but we wanted people to still see the plant stands rather than just see the plants. This is another house where the artwork on the left is really stunning and she did want a big tree next to it, and we actually talked her out of it and had a moment of greenery that would give space to the artwork and let it stand out. On the right is actually a great client, Mercedes Me store, which is in Melbourne. When they actually approach me, they if you've ever worked with an architect, the process isn't always straightforward, and it probably never is. The plants had actually been taken out of the project to save money. When the space was built, the client really wanted the plants back in there. But the design had changed so it didn't allow for the initial planters that they had designed in there. And then they asked me for fake plants and I walked out of that meeting. They actually spoke to me after and said, oh, why won't you do it? And I explained why. And the fact that they were Mercedes and they had to actually contribute back to the community by not doing fake plants. So we actually experimented and I said, if it doesn't work, we'll take everything back and we'll refund you. Um, and it's now been there for two and a half years. We've done another stage to it. But we use three types of plants in that project. So we're quite restrained with the plants we use. And the plants form the background rather than taking over the space. We did a whole lot of work for Westfield, as I mentioned, and that was to ban plastic plants. So this is a project in Perth where there were no plastic plants in this, pre this area of the shopping centre. But it was a series of ways to actually, and you can do this in your house too, to stop people walking a certain way or to provide more privacy. It's something that we're always concerned about on balconies. 
On the left here, the cinema entry was there, and the same here at Supernormal in Melbourne, where this table, imagine sitting there at dinner time and having a line behind you. It's not a very pleasant seat in the restaurant. So creating moments where you could screen out people and direct movement in a space as well. As I mentioned, using scale and texture, IKEA is great, Kmart's great, but you want to be careful not to go there too often because your house will become very plastic and fake. I'm sure everyone's wanting a genuine space and it doesn't always have to be stuff you buy from the shop or even our shop. A lot of the stuff in our house is vintage finds or salvos, even stuff. You know, I live in Abbotsford where the older residents are moving out and they're just throwing stuff on the street and a lot of the stuff in my house is from that. You can start looking at little moments. So this coffee table, with it's just an off-cut of stone actually from the kitchen, but using materials to help soften and brighten spaces too. Smaller pots create nice moments on smaller tables. You shouldn't be scared about living in a small space. I think Australians have to change their train of thought about living in a small space. We probably don't use the parks as much as we should, whereas you go to New York and people barely home, they're out in public spaces. Living in a small space means that your scale changes. Although you might want a big tree in your house, you might not be able to fit it in and you might be able to bring greenery in through mass, like I have, through smaller plants and different forms as well. Looking at organic materials like rattan and cane, but not kind of referring to the old boho look. It can be more restrained. And you don't always have to have heaps of plants to soften a space. And then looking at size and textures on the floor as well. So linking your furnishings with your plants is really important. Using colour, although I don't use a lot of colour in my house, I try to use natural colours in the projects or pair the colours with what's already been chosen in the space. So painting pots to match light fittings and I prefer to use a watercolour paint rather than a flat paint. It always adds character and atmosphere straight away when you're using a patinaed product. As an architect I always found people were scared of materials ageing and you know brass not looking as shiny as the first sales installed. It's something I really embrace and something I really love because it adds the atmosphere over time. Often cut foliage, so when we do cut foliage we try to keep it neutral but also bring in that rich tone in the middle. Sometimes your plants are the backdrop once again. So the materials are quite heavy in this retail store and we wanted to just have green to break it up. So it made sense of the material. So when you've got big expanses of stone, concrete in your house, sometimes it just needs little moments to break up the expanses rather than kind of covering everything. Once again, considering we always consider the community and the environment, environment by the way society work around the areas we work in. On the left was actually our store in Peel Street and they're actually old terracotta pipes and then old terracotta tiles. We actually didn't want to spend a lot on our fit out and also we didn't think that Peel Street needed it because it's, it's very Collingwood to, you know, found objects, recycled, and we set the shop up on $1,000 and that's how we did it. And it made sense in that location, whereas we could never get away with that in Brighton um, or South Yarra. So our South Yarra store responds to that community and our Paddington store, we could never do that either. The store responds to that community. And you can see it in good retail stores like Aesop. Each store is slightly different, responds to the community, but it still holds their core values. As I mentioned, smaller moments, but also entry moments. So we always forget the entries into our homes as moments of welcoming. It's really great to have plants in those spots for when you come home, but also your guests come to visit. And it doesn't have to be hard as well. So when I'm looking at outdoor spaces, I'm thinking about hardy. I don't want to spend hours in the garden, two hours watering. My gardening is therapeutic. I'm pruning or harvesting or doing something. I'm not standing there for two hours watering. Hardy plants like citrus, rosemary, they don't have to be edible, but they're really hardy. And then natives in pots, as well as a lot of your South African plants, which aren't so big in Australia, are really hardy in harsh scenarios too. And then thinking about atmosphere again, using plants as a whole. So don't just go and choose all these plants because you think they're cool and you get them home and you go, they don't even match my house. But thinking about planters, thinking about the atmosphere you're creating, sometimes it's haphazard and you embrace that. I always think I want to be minimal and then I laugh at myself because that's not me. Looking at each scenario and each interior and relating it to the atmosphere you're trying to create. These are some shots from the second book, which 
capture that too. So the left is actually an old church in Fitzroy and a lot of her pieces are old bits of furniture from churches, but also old planters and urns and zany plants like the carnivorous plant. That's the exterior. So letting, because she's in such a small space, she wanted greenery. So planting ivy and letting it scale the building. And this last one is actually a barber which is one of our longest clients, is Drunken Barber. I see some smiles. That I'm so surprised at. So if you think about gardening, it's the worst scenario. There's no natural light. It's been there for three years now. The Devil's Ivy is scaling the ceiling and the client's been really great. We've looked after it from the start. So we call our staff plant butlers because it came up as a joke when I was visiting a client. She rang and said, oh, can you pick up some orchids on the way? And I said, oh, yeah, cool. I've just become your butler. And she's like, yeah, you're my plant butler. So all our plant butlers maintain over 70 locations in Melbourne. And we've got some in Sydney, Adelaide and Brisbane. We wanted to really change the way we saw the gardening industry, that it wasn't in the same category as a cleaner or a garbo. Because when we signed up for Westfield, we had to sign up as a cleaner because there was no category for us. So it highlighted some problems in our society and looking at those industries as um, lesser than architects or lawyers. And so they've looked after that. And so it proves that you can grow plants in any condition. Some more urban spaces, sometimes clusters really work. And if you do want to use pattern and, you know, stripes and triangles, chevrons, all that, I try to keep it all in the same tone. So if you use pattern, you might want to just use one color as pattern and then letting it age as well. So you've got planter box textures like Corten still. Painting your fence can be handy to make it almost disappear. And then having moments where it's eclectic as well. So just because you see a really flashy house that's really clean in a magazine doesn't mean you have to be that too. You can embrace being a bit crazy. Some more examples of that. So the left is an apartment in the Cairo complex, so in South Yarra, which is completely zany. The old architect and owner found building products from all around Melbourne back in the day. You can see that's a church window in the same apartment. And so the interior really responds to that too. That's the exterior of the apartments. And the garden is just an addition over time. All the residents have planted things and it's become this mishmash of plants, as you can see. That's our house on the right, as it is today, pretty much, because this was shot quite recent. So you can see how it's grown quite a bit from when we first moved in. But trying to fit more plants in as always. And then rentals. Rentals don't always have to look drab. I always promote people just getting planters that aren't inbuilt so they can take it away with you. We've started integrating joinery with plants as well. And then waiting areas are really important. And there's some detail shots of colour and texture. And that's it for me. So these are, that's actually a really small apartment in Peel Street. But by incorporating some greenery, it's really brought some life into the space. Well, thank you. And we've got time for questions. Hi. You mentioned earlier that liquid fertiliser you considered like a steroid yes. as well. I tap off, I've got an urban composter and I yep. tap off my own liquid fertiliser yep. fertilizer out of that and I use it as a ratio of 1 to 20, is yep. that correct? That's fine. So, so is that in the, same the natural league? stuff I wouldn't consider as a steroid. Okay, cool, thank you. It's more when it's artificial, you know, artificial steroids to us, whereas there are some natural products that get us, as in like feed into us as well, that's fine. Perfect. But just watch when it's artificial. Okay, thanks. Yep. Charlie Carp, that's fine, yeah. So that is more a tonic as well, like sea salt. So sea salt, which is seaweed, not sea salt, because I've had a lot of people ask me about sea salt. Sea salt. So seaweed is a tonic as well. So it helps calm your plants down. I just have a question about the yep. devil's ivy. Yep. I've got a huge open ceiling with yep. um, exposed trusses, and I've noticed yep. that the devil's ivy, I've got a bit of it, but it yep. grows down nicely. Yep. How do you train it up? So you, is it outside or inside? Inside. Inside. So you have to, so Devil's Ivy, like Monstera's, if you've gone up to Queensland, you see Devil's Ivy growing on the palm trees. They need something to grab onto. So you see totem poles sold. You might have to manually fix it on right. until it's attached onto there. And then in a couple of those buildings, it looks like it's mounted in the roof, like it's actually got pots in the roof. So how do you oh, alter in, that? In this project? Yeah, well, if the roof is, you know, six metres high, yep. how do you make sure that it gets water regularly without having to have a ladder? Like this. So, A, you have to love plants <laughs> because, you know, the project we're about to do is a sky garden and no one will touch it because no one has 
no one wants to do that, whereas our team will. So we were up at 4am watering plants. We do it regularly. A lot of people will say no to that. So when it's high up, I actually warn people that you do have to do it. There's no way around it. Yes, you can put irrigation in, but irrigation can go wrong as well. And you've got a leak in your house. I always make sure it's accessible via a ladder. You know, the water, the plants we water are off a boom lift, but, and that's six meters in the air. But if you want to do that, you might want to grow it on the ground level and train it to grow up, right? So then you can water on the ground level. Yeah, that's... Hello. I wanted to ask with the um, fertilisers, like rather than buying them, can you drag home a piece of seaweed, chop it up, stick it in a bucket for a while and then chuck it on your garden? And same with the cow poo. You can do that. Can you mush it up and then just let it... Yeah, that's you, you can do that. I grew up with my garden always stinking because my parents would mm. use manure. I wouldn't do it inside, but you can do that. So it is better. There is someone in Ballarat apparently doing pelletized sheep manure that doesn't smell pellets. That's how they make it. That's how they make it, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, you, it is really great. It's a great product to use and it's natural. So where we, I have actually moved to not, because when we shot the book, I was still using Slow Release and mm. Munash from Ballarat. I thought they wanted me to just sell a product for them and I was you know, like, I don't, don't talk to me. But um, they actually wanted me to trial it for six months and see what I thought. Yeah. And, and that's rock dust and basalt. And that works really well. And do you yeah. have that? Yes, I have store? that. Okay. Yes. And we and sell it too. My other yeah. question, which I just thought of, was yeah. I have um, smaller but native kangaroo paws. Yeah. They've got a bad dose of black. The humidity? Yeah. It, it's yeah. The, I only have a very small garden in the backyard. And there's a water bowl, yeah. which is running, and they don't get splashed, but yeah. they're surely getting some sort of mist from it. Yeah, so they're And some are further away. And they're they've fine. All, they've all gone... So I've had problems with my roses, and as we have global warming, we're just going to be dealing with it. You know, you can't grow roses in the tropics like Singapore. They've got reverse of a greenhouse. Our growing has to change, and actually we as consumers have to change, and we have to start looking after our environment. And that's just being frank about it, because we have all noticed that it's more humid... You know, I was laughing yesterday and I'm like, I stink, it's so humid. The humidity is just coming down. I've spoken to, you know, Graham Ross and all them. Sydney was never that humid either and mm. that's just travelling down. Last year we had a breakout of whitefly, which isn't often a problem indoors and that's become a huge problem. Mm. So as the humidity descends down Australia, we're going to get a lot of different pests and we're actually going to get, we're going to be able to grow a lot of new things, but we're going to stop growing a few things too. And my last yeah. thing in this small was before this garden was done, I never had snails. Now I got snails. So I put, I crushed up yeah. eggshell. Yeah. Do you not, yeah. do you not like nature? <laughs> you I need like to embrace sna- it. No, the reason why I'm saying snails yeah. is because they would yeah. go and munch. I thought they yeah. caused this damage yeah. to these things, but they yeah. munched up this they... things that all these other little natives yeah. were not growing because they were munching them away. Yeah, so um, if you're interested, look at companion planting or cross-planting because there are plants that naturally deter pests as well. I would look into that because that will help if you're doing edible gardening or you've got seedlings. It's really important. Yeah, donate snails. But, yeah, you can actually do cross-planting. Hi. Um, I just had a kind of two questions. When you were talking about repotting, yeah. you said to maybe cut the, the roots. Yep. Why and what um, is that? So you don't always have to do it, but I, it is good to do because it promotes branching of the root system. So if you think about a big tree in the ground and if you've seen someone water the trunk, it's kind of pointless because the root system that's taking up the moisture and the nutrients is where the drip line is. So where the tree's canopy stops, that's where the fibrous roots are. So if you trim the roots, it promotes them to branch out, like pruning the foliage, that helps it branch out. So it is a good practice, especially if it's really root bound. So if you have inherited a plant or you've got a monstera or a plant that grows quite vigorously, it can outgrow the pot really fast and become root bound and the, the root system gets tangled in on itself. So it's good a good practice to just trim it off. Okay. And then my yeah. other question is, um, like some plants that kind of sprout out little like babies or like they grow another one, how do you, what's the best way to, I guess, repot the baby? Yeah. So is it a specific type of plant? Um, yeah. Maybe called snake something. A snake plant? Yep. Yeah, is that? So it's a Sansevieria. How it reproduces is through a runner, and it will shoot out a runner. And then what you need to do is wait for that runner to grow a root system of its own because it's basically the mother plant's given off an umbilical cord. And so when there's a root system, you can trim it off and then transplant that plant. And you'd pot it up the same as you would a normal plant. And is there a good sign to know that it has its own root system? So to stick your fingers in the soil okay. gently, and you will feel a root system in there. Or just try to scrape away a bit. 
Thank you. That's right. I have major problems with air routes on yeah. my Monsteros. Yeah. And, like, is there anything you can do with that or do you just have to kind of cut them off and live with it? So um, they're natural. They normally do that. If you have, um, have you been up to the tropics and seen them on Lived trees? Lived in the tropics, yeah. yeah. So you can tr- the only way is to trim them off. Because you've got air routes, it means if you're doing a good thing. They wouldn't do that if they weren't healthy. And they're just trying to attach onto things to support itself as it's growing. So you can A, leave them on or trim them off. It's just personal. Yeah. I um, just have a question. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's correct. With indoor plants, you need to uh, clean the dust off leaves. Yes. Is that, yeah. is that correct? Yes, it's correct. It's quite interesting when you go to shopping centres and we clean them every week. So what, it's collect- what foliage is collecting is dust. I wouldn't recommend every week in your house, but every six months is a good kind of time frame. So at the start of spring is when gardeners are most active, essentially. So that's a good time to take them into the shower and hose them off. Or if it's too big, you can wipe it off with a bucket of water, some detergent, and then a cloth. But um, the shower is a lot faster. Yeah. Um, I've, look, I've seen the bridge at Melbourne Central, and yeah. it's, it's amazing. I think it, yeah. it encourages people to... To linger and spending yeah, and I, more time there as a community, so it's fantastic. Yeah, and they're actually, next two years, they're putting a rooftop garden on. So there's a lot of work going into that, which is great. Um, how often do you fertilise plants and what do you use? So I'm fertilising at least with, uh, with rock dust now. So I should probably explain why I've gone to rock dust and not slow release anymore. So I grew up in kind of the late 80s, 90s, where artificial was right, and we all know that, so... Slow-release fertiliser was the thing to use. You stopped using manure because manure spelt and it was harder. You started using more cleaning products. And so I got caught up into that world as well, that you had to get cleaning product for the floor, wall, bench, all that stuff. But when you actually looked at the packaging, the ingredients, it was the same. The same for gardening. And when I started, when we started the business was when we realised how, how unsustainable the horticulture industry is. Plastic pots, plastic labels fertilizer so toxins essentially and so we as a business wanted to move towards a change as well so we met with the growers no plastic labels we convinced them to take our pots back to recycle because of quarantine that was really tricky because we could introduce a pest that wiped out their industry and then toxins so we don't use toxins we use it occasionally when there's a breakout and it's going to wipe out a whole office but we rarely do that so we use neem oil as a pesticide it's a product that's heavily used in India in cross-planting. And then rock dust, which is natural. So rock dust, we would do every... You can do it every two weeks if you want, but I tend to do it in summer every three months, but at least once every six months. So start of spring, and then as your tropical plants go into dormancy, that's when I'd do it again. And then I use worm juice or organic products. The thing we have to remember is you don't have to fertilise as such. So it's like us, if we've got the vitamins in the food we're eating, we don't need artificial vitamins. If we're, you know, I had vitamin D deficiency from working in an office for too long and I was on tablets, but really I should have just found a new job that allowed me to go outside. (laughs) So we just get caught up in it. So I think we just have to slow down and assess whether we need fertiliser. Yeah. Hello, thank you so much for your presentation. That's okay. I was wondering for your very large plants in, say, the bedroom or the living room, how you managed to water them all the way through without creating a total mess. So a total mess. So it's once you start being able to water without thinking, that's when you become a gardener. Everything's on a drip tray, so I don't have anything that's that's just sitting there. And what I've worked out, and that's what we do in our projects too, is the first water you will fill your watering can up, water it gradually until it starts dripping out the bottom and then look back on your watering can because it will generally take that amount every time you water it. And so for the 400 plants in my house, it takes me an hour. So it sounds like a lot of time, but it's not really for that many plants. If you're a gardener, it's quick. But if you're someone new to gardening who's already scared, they're like, oh, an hour, that's the TV show. So it's just changing that mindset. One more question. How do you become a plant butler? Our recruitment has been interesting and that's something I got taught that was the hardest. We hire off personality. So some people are willing to learn and some people are not willing to learn. We have a range of horticulturalists. Nathan actually used to be a flight attendant and we've got someone on our team who used to be an events coordinator who now works with plants. We have some new staff at the moment who one worked for a cosmetics company in Japan and then a French girl who worked for high-end retail 
And when they came to us, they didn't really want to work in the industry anymore, work in retail. But our methodology is that you can't just have a whole group of horticulturalists working together. No, it's, yeah, it's insular in a way that um, you're not learning skills. So horticulturalists generally freestyle and Excel spreadsheet scares them. All our projects are on an Excel spreadsheet and there's data that goes back, data that comes out. It's quite rigid because of Nathan's processes in a good way. And so if you've got experience gardening, then that's how you get into the field as well, looking at gardening in a different way. One more. Um, no, I don't have mozzies, but I don't have a lot of pests, to be honest. Yes, there's a, bit, a few more spiders, but nothing to be worried about. You only really have pests when your plants have a bad immune system. So if something's gone wrong is when scale will attack your plants. It's just like humans, so we're more likely to get sick if our immune system's down. It's the same for plants. And help me in thanking the wonderful Jason Chong. That was Jason Chong discussing indoor gardening basics and his most recent title, Green, at Bagunganungan North Fitzroy Library earlier this year. You can find some of the pictures he describes in this talk in his books. If you enjoyed this talk, you'll probably also enjoy our earlier discussion with him from a couple of years back. You can find that in our podcast feed or through our SoundCloud page. You may also want to check out The Plant Society, which you can find at www.theplantsociety.com.au. Currently, they're offering free local delivery, and they have some short videos available on bringing plants into your home. If you're keen to read Green or any other titles about caring for your indoor plants, please place a reservation online. We run regular author talks at Yarra Libraries, and that has not stopped. Please keep an eye on our website for freshly recorded discussions, video author talks, book clubs, and other exclusively online content. Your local branch might be closed right now, but online, the library is more open than ever. Yarra Libraries thanks you for joining us for this episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast. While you can't visit us, think of us as the friendly librarian sticking their head in the door with a fresh batch of bookish chat, new information, welcome distraction, and anything else you might need. Prefer us just when you need us, rather than showing up unannounced in your earphones? No problem. Drop us an email or give us a call. We can't wait to hear from you. Our theme song is Ad And by Broke For Free. <laughs>